I'm not used to being that exercise fun. Anyway, let's uh, <laughs> have two readings this morning. The first one, as Joel said the other day to me, sets the scene for today's message. And it's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I'm reading from the New International Version. When the day of Pentecost came, they, that's the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them was, were filled with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How, then how is this, that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. They have had too much wine. This is God's word. To join me in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Almighty, all knowing, all loving One, you are holy, just, perfectly righteous, and in total control of this world. Your reign is complete, you are entirely sovereign and our trust and hope rests in you and you alone. Heavenly Father, we worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, we worship you as saviour and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, we worship you as sanctifier and comforter of the people of God. Lead us into all truth, as Jesus said you would. Lord, we thank you for the gift of prayer, that we can communicate with you in complete confidence that you hear and answer us. We acknowledge, however, that you have spoken first and that we can only speak to you because you have first spoken to us through your word and through your spirit. Thank you that you continue to speak to us through these means. On this day, when we study Pentecost and hear Peter boldly preach a message of Jesus as Lord and Christ, and see your spirit poured out on all believers who place their trust in you, we ask that you too pour out your Holy Spirit upon us 
in abundant measure that we might go forth as your witnesses, enlivened by your Spirit. Lord, in this moment, we come and bring before you our brothers and sisters who have faced, are facing, or are recovering from significant surgery. We bring before you Pamela Edwards, John O'Hara, Eric Elliott, Tara Granger, Trudy South, Greta Wrightson, Julia Patton, Alex Leishman, and others that come to mind in this moment. Thank you, God, that you are our strength and that in you we will all receive complete healing. We remember that any physical illness, including death, is only temporary, that in you all things will be made new, including our bodies. May Jesus be our vision and in all circumstances, Help us to know deep in our souls that because of the cross, victory over death and evil has been won. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. We continue our reading from Acts chapter 2. Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is God's word. There are certain times as a preacher when you come to a text and you just feel an incredible sense of responsibility. (laughs) An incredible sense of fear. How on earth am I going to preach on a passage that's about preaching in the Spirit. Because Peter didn't spend 20 hours in his office and, and, and late on a Saturday night on his MacBook on the kitchen desk preparing his sermon for Pentecost. It was a Holy Spirit-inspired sermon. So how does a preacher then preach on that? And so I've been so aware of wanting to get out of the way and allow the Spirit to say what He wants to say. Um, So I've worked tirelessly to try and understand and explain what is going on and what Peter is preaching about and why 3,000 people came to faith But I haven't been able to finish this sermon. I don't know exactly where it's going to land. I have an idea, but if the Holy Spirit is at work and if the Holy Spirit has a message for us this morning, then that message is just as much for me as it is for you and I'm kind of excited to see where he's going to take us. 
So are you ready to go on a journey? How about I pray? In fact, Chris, could you just bring up, in today's weekly view, there's a little Pentecost prayer. And this is something that I thought might help prepare us as we come to this sacred text. Let's pray it together. Spirit of truth, breathe life into us and move us to new places. Help us to see the ways in which we have power and resources to change the world and urge us to use what we have for the good of all through the one who motivates us into new living, Jesus Christ. Amen. The day of Pentecost arrived when the small company of believers were gathered together in one place, greatly anticipating the arrival of the Holy Spirit as promised to them by Jesus. When I think of Pentecost, I think of the pouring out of the Spirit, and as a Christian this is true and correct. But do you know that Pentecost was already a celebration? It was a celebration of harvest, of harvesting different types of grain. And it occurred 50 days after the Passover. Passover and Pentecost were Jewish celebrations. And all of that gets transformed in Jesus. The first Christian Pentecost, however, would not so much be a celebration of harvesting grains, but it would be a celebration, and from this point on would be celebrated as being a harvest of souls. Banded together, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in a powerful and dramatic way, and the accompanying sound from heaven attracted a large crowd, many of who were devoutly religious. They had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. A large number of them had come from distant lands, as Luke tells us, to reside in Jerusalem specifically for this festival. How different and life-changing this day was going to be from what they expected as they journeyed to Jerusalem. To their utter surprise, these visiting Jews heard the mighty works of God proclaimed in their own native tongue. Now, those who were sincere among the crowd wanted to find out what the meaning of what they heard was, while others mocked, attributing what they heard to excess drinking. This ridiculous accusation becomes the catalyst for Peter to stand up and boldly proclaim Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Luke details that Peter stood up with the eleven. As we will come to see time and time again in Acts, ministry is best done in teams or in pairs. Even though Peter clearly remains the spokesperson of the apostles, he is by no means alone. I'm certain that to have his brothers standing alongside him and supporting him, agreeing with what the Spirit was saying through him, would have given Peter enormous strength and great encouragement. As I read this text, I can feel the conviction from within Peter. 
He is so overcome by the power of God that he cannot help but stand up and speak out. Peter has been divinely energized. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Here is a great example of that verse. Peter is anything but fearful or timid in this moment. Rather, he is full of boldness and passion. He knows what he believes, and he speaks with such clarity and precision. Of course, Luke has only included a component of the message, as we read in verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. But what we do have in Acts 14 to 41 is exactly what the Holy Spirit intended for us to hear and to know. Peter, the fisherman, Peter, the disciple, Peter, the apostle, is now Peter, the preacher. On this hugely significant occasion, Peter preaches the very first Christian sermon. When Peter begins his sermon, there are 120 spirit-filled believers. When Peter finishes his sermon, there are 3,000 spirit-filled believers. Preachers only dream of such amazing results. Of course, the content of what Peter shared had enormous impact and was entirely spirit-led. However, we can never disconnect the message from the messenger. Peter preached as one who had experienced what he spoke of. He was genuine. There was an authenticity in what he said. It was real. And if we could have been there to witness Peter preach, we would have been witnessing somebody speaking, not about something they just knew in their head, but something they'd witnessed with their eyes and experienced in their heart. And there is a lesson here when it comes to sharing Jesus, which is what this series is all about. We're trying to learn how we can best share Jesus. So whenever we see Peter or one of the apostles sharing Jesus, it's a good opportunity for us to take note of how they're doing that. So what I see in Peter then is that it's not just about what we say, but how we say it that matters. Are we speaking or sharing from a place of genuine conviction, of lived experience, of love? Or are we speaking or sharing from a place of obligation, pressure, guilt? For Peter, it was clearly the former. Whether they agree or not, when someone speaks with clarity, passion, and conviction, it causes people to lean in and listen to what is being shared. Wouldn't you agree? 
When you hear someone speak with passion and they speak from the heart, whether or not you agree with what they're talking about, almost in one sense is irrelevant. They're engaging and therefore you're engaged. And in this moment, I'm sure Peter was incredibly engaging because he was engaged. He was engaged with the Spirit of God. And my brothers and sisters, if we're to share Jesus with others, we must too be engaged with the Spirit of God. Engaged with God, engaging with others. See the pattern? Peter's speech was inspired by the Holy Spirit and it caused thousands to lean in and take note of what was being said. Now, as I said, there were no notes written down. There was no iPad involved. Peter was speaking from his heart. And what he said was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's interesting to consider how much connection there is between the Holy Spirit and words. At Pentecost, the tangible sign of the Spirit's presence was tongues of fire. The Spirit enabled the apostles to speak in a variety of languages. The Spirit empowered Peter to preach with deep conviction. The Spirit through men authored the Word of God. The Spirit illuminates the living Word into our hearts. And what this has taught me and what this reminds us is that we don't have to have all the words figured out. We don't have to have all the words figured out. How often have you felt tongue-tied or unable to speak because you don't know what to say? Could it be that we have become too reliant on wanting to have the right words figured out? And yet if we trust in the Holy Spirit and engage with the Lord, the Holy Spirit will speak through us the words that He wants to say, the words that our listener needs to hear. Only God knows what they need to hear. We don't. Now, there are two things that Peter was clearly active in doing that enabled him to speak a word that cut to the core of his listeners. And the first thing is, he clearly knew the word of God. His fluent quotation of the prophet Joel and David in the Psalms, demonstrate this. It came from his heart. Now, the oral tradition was, of course, different to our tradition. But what this says is that, you know, here Peter, he didn't go and get a scroll. Like he knew these scriptures. They were on his heart. And so I think there's a, a word here for us, a reminder that we need to have God's word on our hearts. In order to share Jesus, bathing ourselves in and familiarizing ourselves with the Word of God 
is deeply important. Peter was also clearly empowered and controlled by the Holy Spirit and spoke what the Spirit convicted him to say. Therefore, in order to share Jesus, submitting ourselves to the leadings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit is deeply important. Knowing God's Word, storing it in our hearts, constantly submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to His empowerment, is an incredible recipe for witnessing to the living Lord Jesus. God has given us His Word. He has also given us His Spirit. He has, He does equip us to be His witnesses. Now, Peter's sermon was grounded in Joel 2, 28, 32. It was his text for the day, if you like. If there was a Bible reader on hand, Nigel would be getting up in Acts 2 and reading Joel 2, 28 to 32. This was a Jewish text taken from a Jewish book spoken to a largely Jewish audience. And the text spoke of judgment and salvation. And this text launched Peter into a passionate, persuasive sermon which had tremendous effect on his listeners. If he had given his sermon a title, it might have been something like, This is that. This, what you are witnessing here in front of you right now, what you are experiencing, is that. It is that which the prophet of old had spoken of, had foretold. This is that. Now what the prophet Joel had spoken about and predicted all those years ago about the Spirit of God being poured out on all people, the glory and power of God being uh, on display and for all who call upon the name of the Lord being saved this was actually coming real. It was taking place right in front of their very eyes. This is that. And it was all because of Jesus. Peter boldly warns those who several weeks earlier had been part of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. He warns them that the day of divine judgment is near and yet he offers hope Because there is still an opportunity for repentance, for salvation, and for divine blessing. Joel 2 gave the explanation for what was occurring at Pentecost. This was the beginning of the last days the unspecified period of time between the ascension and the return of Jesus. The language of last days is fraught with different meanings and understandings. And I'm not going to attempt to explore this now in any great detail except to say this. The term, the last days, is certainly connected with the theme of judgment. 
A day is coming when all people will stand before the God of all creation and give an account for how they lived their lives. When that day comes is not as important as the fact it will come. And effectively, the message of Joel and Peter is repent now while there is still time. When the day of judgment comes, will you be standing with Jesus by your side or will you be standing alone? I'm sure many of you have seen the election signs of Lucy Wicks standing next to Malcolm Turnbull as you drive around the local area. There is a powerful message at play here. A vote for Lucy is a vote for Malcolm. Now, members of Robertson cannot vote for Malcolm, but because Lucy is on Malcolm's side, a vote for her is effectively a vote for him. Now, regardless of what political persuasion you have, a photo of Lucy standing next to Malcolm, the Prime Minister of Australia, gives her great credibility. This is exactly what the sign is designed to do. Now, forget about Lucy and Malcolm. Think about yourself. On the day of judgment, will your placard have you and you alone? Or will your placard have you with Jesus standing next to you? To place your trust in Jesus as your Messiah means that your placard no longer has a picture of your face with Terrigal Beach in the background, but you and Jesus. And the credibility of Jesus standing next to you makes all the difference for eternity. And Peter speaks a word of warning. Joel speaks a word of warning. A day of reckoning is coming. Repent now while there is still time. And change the status of your placard. Peter continues his impassioned speech by drawing on other Old Testament references that foreshadow Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic hope. He quotes Psalm 16, 18, 11, as well as Psalm 110, 1. Both are Davidic Psalms. The Holy Spirit has enabled Peter to read the Scriptures Christologically. What that means is that wherever the Scriptures point to the promised Messiah, Peter now understands that that Scripture's fulfillment is realised in Jesus. So Peter pulls out two of those passages that speak of a coming Messiah. The first one, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. 
Now, this psalm is one of David's dual-layer psalms. On the one hand, it expresses his hope and assurance of eternal life. On the other hand, it goes way beyond David to someone far greater than he, namely his descendant, the Messiah. Verse 27 goes beyond anything David can claim for himself. David would not dare refer to himself as God's Holy One, and he would not dare claim that his body would not decay in the tomb. And this is exactly the point that Peter goes on to make in the subsequent verses. At this point, Peter may have even jested into the direction of where David's tomb was, possibly just outside Jerusalem, as he reminded his audience that David had died, that his body had decayed. But clearly David was speaking about someone else. He wasn't speaking about himself when he claimed that God's Holy One would not see decay. David was foretelling of the resurrection of Jesus. The tomb of David had the remains of David, but the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was empty. As Luke had informed us in chapter 1, Jesus rose and appeared several times to his followers for 40 days until he was taken up into heaven. Peter then delivers an incredibly powerful and hard-hitting statement. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's preaching was effective. He was not only able to persuade his hearers' minds about who Jesus really was, but he also was able to convict their consciences, or should I say the Holy Spirit convicted their consciences. If Jesus of Nazareth was indeed their appointed Messiah, then what greater guilt could there be than the guilt of treating him the way they did? As Luke highlights, they were cut to the core and wanted to know what they needed to do. Peter chose his words very carefully. God made Jesus Lord and Messiah. Lord emphasizes the kingship of Jesus. To make Jesus Lord of one's life required complete and total submission to his reign and rule. Messiah emphasizes the salvation he brings. Only Jesus can save. The long-awaited Messiah in which Israel had placed their hope was realized in the person of Jesus. In response to what they needed to do, Peter very quickly asserts that they must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now we arrive at the pointy end of the sermon. Repentance literally means to turn. It involves not only a genuine and humble sense of contrition for whatever wrong one has done, but a firm resolution to change and live differently. Baptism was and is a rite which outwardly demonstrates and displays a person's intentions and desires to turn from living their way to Christ's way. 
It involves dying to self and rising to live the new life in Christ. Repentance and baptism go hand in hand. Baptism gives tangible witness outside to an inner reality. If a person comes under the power and conviction of the gospel, the response is to repent of one's sinful ways and be baptised. God's precious gift is the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Have you repented? Have you been baptised? Have you had your sins forgiven? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? There is a rhythm here I've come to see. We lose and we gain. We are emptied and we are filled. Repentance demands that we empty ourselves of any pride, ego, jealousy, lust, greed, selfish thoughts, motivations and actions. To be baptised requires us to give over our lives to Jesus publicly in the company of other believers, witnessing our total and complete allegiance and obedience to Jesus. Make no mistake, this act requires us to let go and accept that we are not in control and that we have rejected God. Think about what Peter was calling his audience to repent from. He was calling them to repent from their rejection of God. And in its most basic form, sin is rejection of God. And we are all guilty of rejecting God. In the act of repentance, we let go of sin and pride. We die to ourselves in the waters of baptism. We rise to new life of freedom and forgiveness in Christ. And we gain the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter called upon his believers to repent and be baptised. And whilst there is an initial and inaugural turning in baptism, these two actions are to set in motion a rhythm for how we live. Repentance, turning around, is something we continue to do every time we reject God. And whilst rejecting God might sound like rather severe language, we do it all the time. Maybe not intentionally, but just read through the Scriptures and examine how God instructs us to live how to treat one another, what to focus our time and energy and money on. And you, like me, will come to see how frequently we treat the Bible as a book of suggestions rather than commands. Baptism, the act of dying to self and rising to new life in Christ, is metaphorically the pattern for how we repent and turn around. We die. 
we bury our sinful deeds in the tomb and we rise to new life. When we live this way, we receive unlimited forgiveness. We are filled with the Holy Spirit who leads us into the truth and righteousness, enabling us to live lives that are cross-shaped, Jesus-centered and mission-minded. Empty and fill, empty and fill, empty and fill, emptied of self, filled with the Holy Spirit. Repentance calls us to empty ourselves, to continually empty the rejection of God. And we reject God every time we choose our way rather than His way. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's something I realized. Paul, writing Ephesians 5, is not writing to non-believers. He is writing to people who are already filled with the Spirit. They've already received the Spirit of Christ. And he says, instead of this, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, the language is used as, as you go, continue to be filled with the Spirit of God. So what Peter was inviting his listeners and 3,000 responded at this point to do was to enter into a rhythm, a life, if you will, of repentance and baptism. I empty myself. I die to myself. I take up my cross daily. I repent. And in the act of baptism, the act of dying to myself, I rise to the new life in Christ. And as I rise to the new life in Christ, my sins are forgiven and I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and I am continually filled. Brothers and sisters, here is the rhythm. We empty and we are filled. And so I want to ask you right now, how is God speaking to you this morning? What is God calling you to do in response to what the Spirit has spoken to you this morning? Do you need to empty yourself? Do you need to be baptized? Do you need forgiveness of your sins? Do you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm going to invite the music team to come. We're not going to sing. They're just going to play through what we would have sung. This, I believe, a a wonderful song that affirms what we believe. And I just want to create some space for us quietly think about how God might be speaking to us this morning about repentance, baptism, forgiveness, and receiving the filling of the Holy Spirit. And in a moment, I will pray, and then I'm going to invite anyone who would like to come forward 
and receive prayer to do so. Let's take a moment just to reflect. Empty and fill, empty and fill, empty and fill, empty and fill. The rhythm you call us to, Lord, is a rhythm that demonstrates complete and total surrender to you. We empty ourselves. We repent of our sinful ways that reject your ways. We let go of that which is not of you in our lives. We empty ourselves. And as we empty ourselves and as we enter the waters of baptism metaphorically and daily die to ourselves, you rise us up. You forgive us. You remind us that we are children of the living God, sons and daughters of the high King of Kings. We have been forgiven. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you fill us with your Holy Spirit. You empower us to live in grace, to live in freedom, to live in confidence, to live secure in your love, and to live as witnesses to this rhythm of empty, fill, empty, fill, empty, fill. And so Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you come upon this room, come upon each soul in this place today, Lord. Bring your spirit of conviction, bring your spirit of love, bring your spirit of forgiveness and help us to let go of our pride and our egos and our own agendas and empty and empty and empty ourselves in order that we may be filled filled, filled with you and the power of your spirit. Come upon us, we pray. We don't want to be a church that just goes through the motion of doing